Let, let's just jump right into it. We got some news. We had a couple, well, one big thing happened this week. You want to just start with the big story? Sure, we can do that. All right. So uh, the big story this week was that President Nelson spoke at the 110th NAACP convention in Detroit. That was the big one. Now, the elephant in the room was not really addressed during uh, President Nelson's remarks. He did have some remarks there. He didn't apologize for the ban or anything like that or really address it. But he did affirm several platitudes in his remarks like all are alike unto God, that we want to build bridges of cooperation rather than walls of segregation. I actually really liked that bar. I wrote it down. Uh, he said that we want to capitalize on our respective strengths and help more people by working together. Like it was it wasn't a bad talk. I actually did enjoy the talk and appreciate it. But it was less than what I was expecting from President Hustle M. Nelson, whose presidency is marked thus far by a lot of big moves. And this seemed like a bit of a baby step. Like our, our partnership with the NAACP so far has been going on for a little while now. And the president and President Nelson's appearance here, which was admittedly a big deal, like we haven't had a church leader speak at the biggest NAACP convention ever, I think. Like that event was still a bit underwhelming for me as someone accustomed to President Nelson's demonstrably quick pace. You know, President Nelson didn't mention our history or the church's recent efforts to build those bridges and strengthen bonds within our own community. And I found that kind of interesting. Like if we're going to if we're here for some clout, then, you know, let's flex a little bit, you know, like that was that was uh, the first thing I noticed in my, I guess, primary complaint. But uh I mean, not even my primary complaint. There was something else with Dr. Brown. I think we both want to talk about that. But uh, what were your initial impressions of President Nelson's remarks? Well, I I liked them for what they were, right? I think he succeeded in his goal of, of building a particular kind of bridge. I don't think in, in a 10-minute speech you can, you can adequately address the things that need to be addressed. Um. I think if there if he's going to do an apology, it should be first done in general conference with uh with saints of all colors on our home turf in a way, and then once you've done that, you can um you can go to the NAACP and do the work there. I don't think that that conference would be the first place to to make an announcement of an apology. Um. In part because what it looks like is, okay, I'm just going to uh, a room full of black people and tell them how good we are at what we're doing at being anti-racist, which is not the best thing to do. Um, so I can kind of see why he didn't apologize in, the, in that particular speech because to, to deal with the issues, it would take more than – probably more than an hour to actually unpack with justice – uh the topic uh yeah so i liked i liked what what president nelson said i think there's more things to cover hopefully yeah there are more things to cover and i don't think he could get to it in that in that the speech that it was intended to be for that time and place hopefully we will see more elsewhere which was hinted i think by dr brown's uh testimony of what president nelson must have communicated to him during their pre-talk meetings. 
Now, this was something that I did want to address because it, it, it doesn't seem that the NAACP leaders are oblivious to the church's past. Like, but the suggestion that the church had already apologized did seem pretty suspect to me. Now, what we got to remember was that the fake apology came out on the same day that the NAACP and the church announced their partnership. We do have to acknowledge that. I don't know if there was perhaps some confusion there, but, uh, you know, real talk for me, if this new initiative, whatever the partnership is going to do, if that's going in a positive direction, then I personally won't need an apology. Like I'd much rather people be better than be sorry. But we have discussed on this show multiple times the necessity of an apology for repentance. And we discussed that specifically regarding the priesthood ban. That, that hasn't changed for me. But while we're out here partnering with communities, offering self-reliance classes, which are necessary, but that also kind of feeds into the pathology of black degeneracy, since that's the only thing we're doing right now, our actions need to match our goals. And I want to see more than just these classes. I don't want to just see, you know, initiatives to teach self-reliance classes in our communities because, you know, they are necessary. But if that's all we're doing, then we're just, like I said, kind of feeding into the pathology that black people need to be more self-reliant as a whole and that our inability to be self-reliant is the primary thing holding us back. So that is, that's really my only issue with the notion that the church has apologized and also with the current initiatives going on between the NAACP and the church. Yeah, one thing that I told you earlier was the difference between, on the one hand, what was actually accomplished by this talk, and two, what we can accomplish with this talk locally. Because we now can uh, use this talk as evidence that, oh, look, we need to engage the issues, we need to uplift black voices, we need to even go to black churches. If people criticize me for attending black churches, I can say, well, look, President Nelson did, and he nodded along to the black choir. So I'm just following the prophet. And so we can go farther uh, using President Nelson's text as a basis for explaining it to people who don't get it yet. I think there are some people in the church who are still deeply uncomfortable with interfaith dialogue with other churches. And here you have two religious leaders, Dr. Brown, a very well-accomplished theologian, in his own right, seeing President Nelson as a brother, uh, seeing them each mm. other as a brother, yeah, I think that's powerful. We don't have to say we don't have to say bad things about other churches in order to say good things about our church. Yep, and I think that is a step in the in the direction of oh look, we don't have to have this Mormon exclusivity theory of oh we're special, we're the best, we can just ignore what other churches are doing, especially the black church yeah. in terms of music, art, preaching, all of these other gifts that the that our bla own black saints can give us have not been used as a resource so far in our church. And we can use things like this to do that work locally. Yeah. What do you think of what do you think of Dr. Brown's comment that something about President Nelson gave Dr. Brown the impression that President Nelson is going to fight racism, xenophobia, homophobia, and every 
ism and phobia there is. Okay. That was powerful. Yeah, I also... I I almost believed it. Like, I'm not all the way there on the belief for that. Because let, let, let's just talk for a moment about the church and the NAACP. The church always seems to be about 10 to 30 years behind modern society. And then we're teaming up with another organization that is also a bit antiquated and has been played out. You know, just... I, I, I don't know. Like, when he when he said that the church apologized for racism and that it's better than other white churches and that we're going to fight, you know, homophobia and xenophobia. Just, I don't totally buy it. It's not, a, not at this point, like president Nelson, he got up and started talking about unity and how he's BFFs with pastor Davis. You know, it, it was kind of buying into the black friend trope and I didn't really I don't, I don't really buy it, you know. It's encouraging, but I'll believe it when I see it. Just we we don't quite have the past, nor do we have the present to really substantiate any kind of belief for me personally that we are going to fight homophobia and xenophobia because there is still a lot of homophobia in the church right now. There are still a lot of Latter-day Saints who are saying deplorable things about issues at the border or other xenophobic things. There are too many people in the church that subscribe to the rhetoric of a president who has predicated his campaign and his presidency on misogyny, xenophobia, and racism. Just, I don't, I don't quite buy it yet. That's where I'm at on this. So I'm, I'm very much in a low expectations area and I still have a low bar and a very much am a, I'll believe it when I see it person. So if we're going to fight xenophobia and homophobia, show me the money, man. Like, what are we doing? What are we going to do? Yeah, I'll say two things about that. One is, given Trump, we should also note that the NAACP convention uh, voted to impeach. Well, they can't vote to impeach Trump, but they you voted unanimously in support of the idea of Im- impeaching Trump. Mm. And two, like I said— the statement about, oh, I know President Nelson well, we're buddies, and something he said made me think he's going to fight homophobia. Well, yeah, I get that that's not the reality on the ground isn't there yet, but it is still a very useful statement for our work locally because then sure. we, when we fight homophobia, we can say, look, I'm just doing what President Nelson is supposed to be doing based on the impression that he gave Dr. Brown. Yeah. Because they must have had pre-talk meetings. And I think that there must have been some kind of apology, maybe not an official thing, but there must have been some sense of repentance given uh, to the NAACP of like, look, this is what we did, and and we stopped doing that, and now we're trying to work and do the right thing. And phrasing it like that does sound kind of like an apology. I think that they they really did a, get a sincere impression of of good people trying to do the right thing are taking these steps here as leaders in the church. Now, just because they're well-intentioned doesn't mean that they have all the accurate information about what needs to be done, right? But I think that we can we can work with that locally and use it in a very powerful way to do where what the spirit is leading us to do locally. Sure. Yeah. 
I, I can see that, and I agree with that. Like, we can definitely use that, um, use our knowledge of that conversation to fuel what we do on the ground locally. And I, I certainly look forward to doing that much. The other thing I want to say, as an educator, expectations are so powerful in terms of managing people's behavior. Like, if a classroom knows what you're expecting of them, they will generally rise up to it. Mm -hmm. If you have, if you set a low bar, they're just going to go over that bar because they know that that's all. But if you have very, very high expectations, that's one of the most important variables in the success of a classroom. And I think the same thing true is interpersonal relationships. If you look at someone with the look on your face, look, I know you're going to do the right thing, and you are holding them to that, it's it's very likely that they're going to do the right thing. If they, if you have that relationship and they know what the expectations are, they're going to try to reach them. And I think that's the sense in which we can have high expectations strategically for our leaders. Like, look, you're good people. I know you're going to do the right thing as soon as you know what it is. Let's talk. That is actually a great point. And I admit I did not look at it from that perspective. I definitely know the power of high expectations in education and uh, interpersonal relationships as well. That usually leads to one of two things, people aggressively striving to meet those expectations or people immediately kind of petering out and shirking the relationship or the responsibility. So I'm hoping that this can be this can lead to some positive momentum for the church's efforts in in civil rights, uh, civil rights efforts. So, uh, yeah, great point, Derek. I, I really appreciate that. Anything else that you notice from this story or anything yeah. else that stood out to you? Let me ask you one question. Basically, how do you think white people in the church should react to this development? Because I don't think it's something that we as white people should celebrate and say, oh, look, what we're doing is so great. But what, what, what should we do? Is there a way we can lift up black voices here? Like what should our response be uh, when we look at – because what I don't want is white people to, to post this online and say, oh, look, we're not racist anymore. So what should <laughs> white people do? That, that's a good question, and uh, I agree with you. We shouldn't get – specifically white people anybody should not get too excited about this partnership like the partnership is a big deal but uh, what white people need to do is perhaps do some more research on the NAACP see what it is they're about and see how they can implement the principles of the NAACP on the ground in their own wards and branches what I want to see white people doing is seeing that the church is prioritizing this relationship with an organization meant to advance black bodies black souls black minds what can I do to do the same that means that we got to be and you already said this but we got to be out in the communities we need to be working proactively to build positive relationships with the black people in our lives so that we can be better equipped to be better emissaries emissaries of the gospel to them and serve them so that is what i want to see i want to i want this relationship to be seen as something symbolic that the saints need to strive for they need to prioritize relationships with black people in their lives because race is a significant issue in our country president nelson I'm assuming the church has partnered with the NAACP because we do actually want to uh, tear down 
walls of you know xenophobia and bigotry and build ones of friendship and reconciliation so we should implement that in our own lives on the ground and on an individual and a personal basis i want to see specifically white people reaching out to the black members of their wards making more of an effort to understand the plight of black people in america so they can be better equipped to uh, preach the gospel and serve uh, the black members of their community. I want them to be more empathetic towards uh, the black soul. So um, that, 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 that's what I want. It's hard to cite just one thing or a couple of things even. Uh, I hate to go broad, but that is more or less what I want to see happen. I want to see more empathy develop. I want to see more of an effort being made by the white saints to understand and subsequently minister to black people. Wow, that is so powerful. It reminds me of all the work that that we need to be doing as white people in the church. One other thing, I think the last thing I want to say about the NAACP thing is we can't ignore the intersectionality of people who are queer or trans and black. Yes. Because the NAACP is a civil rights organization, and it has been on the right side of LGBT issues longer than a lot of other organizations. I remember they supported marriage equality years before it happened in their in their official convention. They supported um, the inclusion of gay folks in the military long before it happened. So one of the ironies is that it this isn't just um, that the gay the, the gay rights thing isn't just a white people issue in order to have, Full equality for black people, we need to have full equality for black LGBT people. Yes. Which means that needs to be done too. And so this is well within the scope of the NAACP to comment on these issues. And we need to, to think about this when we, when we realize, oh, look, that our church is partnering with a pro-LGBT civil rights organization, which I don't actually think has happened before. Oh, wow. Okay. Right? Yeah. So, not to derail the conversation, but it is crucial. If we're going to lift up all black people, we need to have LGBT issues discussed within that context. So, I'm, I'm glad that this work is starting, and it can serve as a pretext for continuing the good work. Yeah, man. That's a great point. That's a great point. I didn't even consider that this is a pro-LGBTQ organization that the church has partnered with. Um, like uh, at this scale, that is that is significant. So uh, thanks for bringing that to our attention. Is there anything else from uh, this uh, past week at the convention that you want to bring up? No. Cool. Then um, I want to move on to another story real quick. I, I don't really think this episode will be adequate to address it. I would really like to have uh, Daniel Burgess on one of our bonus episodes to discuss this particular issue. But I did see a study come out of BYU. I don't know if you saw this uh, yourself. No, I did But didn't. Uh, there was a BYU study that, uh, okay. So this BYU study seemed to say that viewing pornography leads to unethical behavior at work. That was pretty much the whole thing. Now, even the people who conducted this study seem to suggest that it's highly correlational. But I do think that this headline and the purpose of this study alone is pretty... Um, it's pretty dangerous. Like the last thing I want anybody to feel is that 
because they are viewing pornography that they are entirely a bad person, an unethical person, or an immoral person. And granted, pornography and the industry itself have a lot of problems, but I'm very hesitant to ascribe anything negative to people who view pornography that implies a greater immorality simply because uh, they view pornography. So uh, at some point, I would really like to address all these complexities surrounding pornography perhaps in a another episode where we can have an expert on but uh, i just i right. remember seeing that study and just being like really byu this is what we're doing now we're going to go ahead and imply that there's some kind of causality between pornography and other immoral behaviors because that seemed to be the the intention in going forward for future studies was to basically imply that viewing pornography leads to a moral character and uh, I, I think that's a bit of a problematic assumption or even a problematic thesis to pursue. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I can't say much without reading the study or even reports about it. But I will say that when we look at this issue, we need to come at it with a spirit of of healthy investigation and curiosity of getting at, well, what's actually going on rather than this reactive fear-based approach because yeah. that will close off so many avenues of getting at the truth we need to actually just break open the issue figure out what's going on figure out where where we can intervene but just running around and saying look building up hysteria and paranoia about so so pornography has become this very very high stakes issue for many people within the church and i think that can really make things worse in some in some respects the war on porn is actually worse than the porn in terms of damaging relationships and causing people to have other behaviors that are problematic hiding things lying um betraying people ignore you know all these other things we need to figure out well what's actually going on what variables are there that make the difference how can we uh make sure that everyone has a good healthy relationship with their own sexuality and with their partner all those things need to be done and when you are in a state of fear you can't do those things yeah big time big time all right that that's really all i wanted to say about that particular story um what else you got for news derek i just wanted to touch quickly on two things one is i don't know if you've heard of josh harris but he was an evangelical Christian writer. He wrote a very, very influential book in 1997 called I Kissed Dating Goodbye. Have you heard of this before? Um, No, I have not. Okay, well, it might not have made it to the Latter-day Saint world, but this was all the buzz in the evangelical and conservative Bible-believing Christian world for decades. The basic thesis of his book was dating is bad and worldly, And what we should do is have a courtship model instead where you don't even kiss before marriage and that you don't go on exclusive dates by yourselves, but you are chaperoned and you ask the girl's father for permission. There's a whole bunch of problematic things in this book. One is the sexism involved of seeing a, a woman as her as basically the property of her father until she's the property of her husband. There's a lot of fear-based things here like, oh, if you have sex before marriage, then your whole world will be a mess and you'll 
fall into this big disaster and you'll, everything will be messed up. Another thing is there's the – oh, I don't want to talk about it too much. But basically the news part of this is that Josh Harris has completely repudiated his previous position that he articulated in this book. He has apologized to the LGBT community and saying, look, I was wrong about that. He, And this is kind of a separate issue, but he and his wife are now divorcing. And I don't want to oh, wow. say, I don't want to say, oh, look, I told you so. Your method fails because your marriage failed. That's not what I'm saying, right? What I'm saying is this, this incident now means that his story can't be weaponized against other people the same way because no one can point to him and say look his his life is perfect you should do what he's doing and no one can weaponize his book the same way again and so while my heart goes out to him i don't know the details of his personal life i want him to have a good life moving forward but he is he's basically retracted what he has said in his book realized that the fear-based messaging has damaged people and another thing that's really damaging is, you know, I don't know if you've uh, heard of what we call prosperity gospel in the evangelical yeah. world. It's the whole, it's the whole. If you do what God says, God's going to give you health and wealth and prosperity. It's the whole prayer of Jabez thing that went around decades ago, very very popular, uh, and very anti-biblical. By the way, Jesus taught, if you follow me, you're going to be poor. And you're going to get killed. That is not prosperity, according to the world. But what this book does is promise a false promise of sexual prosperity, saying, well, if you refrain from sex before marriage and you refrain from all these other behaviors, if you've refrained from all this, when you get married, you're going to have the best sexual life ever and everything's going to be great and saving it for your wedding night will make it awesome and that's actually a false promise nothing in the bible which is josh harris's source for everything nothing in the bible actually promises that uh and i think there's a similar thing happening in the lds context of of oh look if you just do this follow this simple formula you're gonna have a great sexual relationship with your spouse and I think that really shortcuts a lot of the work that needs to be done and in order to get there, setting up marriages for failure. And I really want to improve, and this is what Daniel Burgess is. He has a, a group for improving Mormon marriages. And I came up with this radical proposition that the number one thing we in the church can do to improve marriages is to improve the lives of single people mm. because if we lift up single people we lift up everybody and if we improve the lives of single people it will do two things some of the problems in our marriages are caused by people marrying too early um, and people marrying the wrong person and I think there is a fear in our church of being single which causes people to marry early and marry the first person that is willing to marry them and that's not the recipe for a healthy marriage if we make it such that single people can thrive in the church and take the pressure off of of single people in that way we will have much better pairings and much healthier 
relationships because now these two single people when they get married aren't bringing all the baggage that of the single person's life with them. Mm. They will be coming into the marriage as whole and complete persons. Right now we have this mythology in the church of every person is just half a person while they're single. And you have to get married in order to be a complete person. And yeah. that is very damaging, not just to straight people, but it's damaging to the pe- those straight people. W- I mean, did I say straight people? I meant single people. <laughs> uh, so it's very damaging to those single people when they get married because they bring all of that with them. The This high stakes, high pressure expectation on their partner. It's just a, a big disaster waiting to happen. And I think by lifting up single people making sure that there's a place for single people in the church we will prevent a lot of hasty marriages a lot of rushed marriages to the wrong person we will prevent a lot of people being afraid of being lonely or single yeah because singleness is part of the body of christ there's going to be single people there's going to be married people we are one body with many members we don't all have the same task or function in the church and I think by completely ignoring the vitality of single people, we have created a very dangerous situation for married people in the church. So that's my, my rant on, on how we can improve marriages. And the number one answer is to improve the lives of single people. Nah, that was a, that was a great thing you shared, Derek. And I was thinking about this just, li- just last night. I was, on a, I was on Mutual's blog for whatever reason. I don't remember what I was doing there. But uh, they were talking about just how a, lo- a lot of people, uh, single people, when they break up and end up from being in a relationship to not in a relationship, people tend to view themselves as broken individuals or they right. view themselves yeah. as incomplete mm-hmm. individuals thinking about all the things they could have done to preserve the relationship. And there's like this myth that just because you haven't found somebody or don't have somebody or worse, when somebody leaves you, that there is something wrong with you as a person. But you all, you've already like hit the nail on the head with this. Like there is room for everybody in the body of Christ. Like being single doesn't of necessity mean that there's something wrong with you. And it's an important thing to be able to empower the single people of the church so that we can raise everyone in the church. Ultimately, more complete, more empowered, more confident single people will lead to more fulfilling and more empowered marriages. So I really like that you've uh, taken the time to mention that because particularly in the church, singleness is sometimes seen as some kind of malady or disease. And uh, to see that eradicated would be an incredible thing. If there is nothing else on this, is there any other news or should we dive right into the come follow me? I don't I just want to mention real quick the incidents in Puerto Rico. Oh yeah. Because okay. this gives a powerful I don't know a lot of the details or the background, so I'm not gonna say much about this, but just a few news reports that I've seen talk about the power of the protest of the people. So we have the governor of Puerto Rico resigning because of the peaceful uprising of people saying, no, we, we can't handle this. Um, there's a whole bunch of unethical things, irresponsible things. I don't even know what the whole problem is exactly, uh, including some homophobic and sexist remarks that have been reported and, and people, including Ricky Martin, who's also gay, said, Look, we've got to we've got to protest this governor, and then he resigned. And I think the voice of the people is very powerful in this case, and we can't ignore 
what happens when people organize. And I think we can learn, use this as a lesson on mo mobilizing, on getting things out there and holding people accountable and not, basically it's the power of expectations again. Yep. I think that's, that's important. And we should also remember that Puerto Rico is an American colony. We have colonized an entire island, claimed it for ourselves, and n not quite given them the full— we've given them American citizenship, but we haven't given them the full dignity that they deserve. And I don't know what the solution is there, whether it should be independent, whether it should be a U.S. state. I don't know. That's for them to decide. But we should we should realize that the American colonial project is not over. We have we have a lot of work to do there too. So that's all I had to say about that. Cool, and I don't think I need to add any more. So, uh, do you have any other news stories? No, that's all I have for news. Sweet. Then let's go ahead and move straight into the come follow me. And I think I only have a couple of things to say myself, or I actually. I'm lying. I got a lot to say, but it's about like just a couple of things in this particular reading. Um, and Derek, I would love to hear your thoughts on this because I don't know if I got all my facts straight and I don't know if uh, I'm, I'm quite certain that some of this is going to invoke something in you as I talk. So feel more than okay, free to chime you, in yeah. when I'm done. Okay. Yeah. You go first. Excellent. Okay. So I'm going to talk about Paul's trial before Felix in Acts 24. Um this stood out to me for a couple of reasons, and I'm just going to kind of set the stage of Paul being brought to trial, at least why he was brought to trial according to Tertullus. Am I saying this right? Uh, Tertullus, yeah. Tertullus, okay, cool. So Tertullus is bringing Paul to trial, basically saying that he's annoying, a danger to society, a leader of a seditious group, and that he profaned the temple. Very similar accusations to um, what, what the Sadducees accused Peter and John of doing and what they accused Christ of doing. So uh, Paul is later going to tell us the real reason that the Jews got a problem with him. And that's because, again, same reason as the Sadducees who took issue with Peter and John. Uh, the real issue that Paul says the Jews have with him is because Paul is preaching the resurrection and the Jews view that as heresy. However, Paul's like... The message of the resurrection is actually identical to the long-held hope of the Jewish nation. Acts 26, 6 through 8. And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers, unto which promise our twelve tribes, instantly serving God day and night, hope to come. For which hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused of the Jews. Why should it be thought a thing incredible with you that God should raise the dead? Close quote. Now, the doctrine of the resurrection is a significant part of Christian belief. Paul talks a lot about the way in this chapter. Like, it, it seems to be a piece of the destination, that is to say, the resurrection. For the doctrine of Christianity is basically that through Christ, all will be resurrected. The Jews, for whatever reason, probably similar to reasons that they imprisoned Peter and John, took issue with the teaching of the resurrection. It was a, it was a revolutionary teaching. Now, as cited by Tertullus, he was likely upsetting social order. So there's that whole piece of it. But uh, that's not the piece I want to focus on. I just want to set the stage with that. The piece I really want to focus on is Felix's response to Paul. And it's pretty, pl pretty cold-blooded. So uh, 
let, let's talk about this part. Paul is going to talk to Felix about three things that we know of anyway. Righteousness, temperance, and judgment. Now let's talk about Felix real quick. Felix is not a righteous guy. He is not a temperate guy, and he's not a fair guy. Like this is a guy who's known for his uh, lewdness, his lasciviousness, his giving in to carnal lust. He mar- He's married to Drusilla, and what we know about Drusilla is she is the third wife of Felix, and she's the daughter of Herod. Uh, that same daughter, actually, who asked for John's head on a silver charger. So th- these are not good people that we're talking about, and that has to be acknowledged. So um, he's basically the opposite of all the stuff that Paul is talking about. Yet when Paul finishes speaking, Felix doesn't seem to display any anger. In fact, he seems touched and deeply affected by Paul's words. We read that he trembles at Paul's words. Now tell me how Felix is going to hear Paul be moved by his testimony and then not only keep this dude in prison, but also try to extort him. So like we're, we're going to read these words real quick in Acts 24 because they are actually pretty chilling to me. He said, as he, it reads, as he reasoned of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come, Felix trembled and answered, Go thy way for this time. When I have a convenient season, I will call for thee. So there are two things that happen here that we got to acknowledge. One is that Paul didn't get released from prison. He's actually going to spend another two years in there so Felix can be uh, cool with the Jews and also hold out for some bribery money from Paul. So that in and of itself is pretty messed up. Right, yeah. But the second thing here is, is even more disturbing. Felix is not going to accept the gospel because it is not convenient to do so now. Like, we, we, we see this happen a lot in society today. Those in power often know they're acting in an unjust way but they'll say something to the effect of when I have a convenient season. Right. Like I really like what M. Russell Ballard had to say about, you know, stuff like this, about saying later or about postponing things. Uh, he said that, um, that sometimes we're tempted to let our lives be governed more by convenience than by covenant. I'm going to say that again. Sometimes we are tempted to let our lives be governed more by convenience than by covenant. It is not always convenient to live gospel standards, and it's not always convenient to stand up for truth and testify of the restoration. And it's usually not convenient to share the gospel with others. And he goes on to say that opportunities to serve others in meaningful ways, as we have covenanted to do, rarely come up at convenient times. But there's no spiritual power in living in convenience. The power comes as we keep our covenants. Now, how often are dreams, our peace, and justice deferred because it is not convenient for those with the power to offer it? Like, our history is riddled with examples of this. Slavery, black civil rights from the Emancipation Proclamation to police reform. Delayed, delayed, delayed. LGBTQ civil rights from Stonewall to marriage equality. Delayed, delayed, delayed. Like, the first responders bill was delayed for months, you know? And these are the people that were, like, on ground zero, like, helping out people who were in the midst of crisis. And we are just now barely guaranteeing that their compensation fund will never run out just barely did that a few days ago now i'm sure there are people arguing that we're seeing this right now at the border you know it's not convenient to defer resources so we defer the safety security and peace of those seeking help 
You know, we, we endanger people and we really endanger ourselves by choosing not to do the right thing because it's not convenient. We always want to wait till a more convenient time. And that's super dangerous. Like opportunities, relationships and blessings. They're lost way too often because later becomes too late. And what happened for and that's exactly what happened for Felix. Like a more convenient time never actually came for Felix. Next time Paul talks to somebody, he's talking to Festus and Agrippa because Felix, what happened to him was he was removed by the Roman emperor for his misdemeanors and uh, historians maintain that his family was killed in like the eruption of uh, Mount Vesuvius in AD 78. So the lesson here, the primary lesson here is that later is not an acceptable answer when it comes to doing the right thing, whether that's delivering justice or serving Christ. When we have the opportunity, the time is now. Now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the time for men to prepare to meet God. Do not procrastinate the day of your repentance. It all points to now because we are not guaranteed later. And later could actually put us and other people in danger. Wow, that is so powerful. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, man. Yeah, though, that that is so powerful. I'll just have one point to add. So this, the word in Greek for the translated as convenient season is kairos, which means like an appointed time, a, a, a scheduled or specified opportunity, something like, like I'm waiting for the right moment type of a thing. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting about this is that that Felix is throughout this whole episode trying to act in his own self-interest. Yep. But he actually doesn't because in for two reasons. One, his own self-interest, it's actually against his own self-interest to do justice to a Roman citizen. Yep. Right? Yep. He is not in a good place if he is denying justice to a Roman citizen. And... Acts is very clear about narrating the role of Paul's citizenship, which we actually don't have any documentation from Paul himself in his letters that he was a Roman citizen. But Acts is narrating it this way, that he's a Roman citizen and it's not in his own interest to to deny justice or delay justice to this Roman citizen. And secondly, it's not in his best interest to reject the gospel which is a more of a dumb moment because it's the things like righteousness and temperance and being able to withstand the judgment of God in its time that actually will help you in the end. So he frustrates his own purposes by not doing the right thing for Paul. And that's, uh, to me, the whole point of this whole thing of waiting for a convenient time is that often waiting for a more convenient time you know, frustrates everything. It frustrates others. It frustrates yourselves. And, you know, we as saints could always learn a thing or two by, by taking lessons from God's timing rather than our own. So I I really appreciate that you, that you brought that up. There's actually one thing I uh, wanted to ask you about in a, in a later, in a later, uh, conversation i actually want to ask you about this uh, conversation with uh, agrippa because you know i hear this particular section get quoted a lot and just for from from you as a biblical scholar and theologian can can, can you shed some light on uh, king agrippa's response to paul about almost being persuaded to be a christian like 
How, how do people read this? Is this said with a sarcastic tone, or do you think that uh, he actually meant that? Well, it's really, you know, I think the scholarly literature on this is divided as to what is actually going on here. Um, it could be a sense of, so, so what, 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 what Agrippa is saying literally is, in a short time, will you make me a Christian? So, so it could be a sense of, um, like, how do you think that you're able to persuade me to be a Christian in just a short time? Um, not really a sarcastic thing at all. And it's, uh, there, there could be. It's very, very hard to detect sarcasm like that. It doesn't, it could be that Agrippa is saying, oh, um, you might be persuading me, uh, but I don't think that's necessary to read it into the text. It's just a, a matter of what it's. And it's hard to tell from the context, too. What That's the number one rule in biblical studies is looking at, well, how does this flow with the rest of the context? And we don't have enough clues from the rest of the context as to whether Agrippa was partly becoming a Christian or not. So that's uh, we kind of almost have to be uh, comfortable leaving it a little bit open if that makes sense yeah that makes sense because there was something else i wanted to read into that if there was a chance that agrippa was actually you know sincere because the word almost is another one of those words that just stood out to me as a dangerous word it's you know it's a word that means very close but insufficient and uh you know agrippa seems to be suggesting that he knows that if he converts to Christianity, then he must break with sin. And he clearly doesn't want to do that. Like Agrippa is living in sin himself. He's living with his sister as if he's his wife. So, you know, he's another adulterous guy, not leaving, not, uh, not living a life of uh, righteousness. So, um, you know, th that was just one more thing I could read into that is just, you know, that that word almost, it, it only hurts simply because there are a lot of people who are on the cusp of greatness or on the cusp of righteousness. They're almost there, but it's just so insufficient because for whatever reason, perhaps they don't appreciate the implications of what embracing a life of full Christianhood means for them. And uh, that could be read into here if I knew for sure that uh, he was not speaking in a mocking tone or a sarcastic tone. Well, let me just point out that part of the issue is the King James. I'm not sure where they're getting the word "almost" from because because the Greek word, the Greek phrase there is "en oligo" in a in a short time or in a short amount. Yeah. So it's basically saying, in a short time, are you try are you persuading me to become a Christian? And so, I don't know where the King James is getting that, but it it ends up a misleading impression in English. Yeah, I agree with that. So uh, thanks for sharing that before I went down a unnecessarily long and perhaps uh, intellectually dishonest rabbit hole. So uh, we'll, we'll just leave that there. I pretty much said everything I wanted to say um, from this reading. Oh, okay. Uh, what do you what did you pick up from this reading? So I basically had one main point. There's a lot to cover in these final chapters, especially the, the sea voyages of Paul. But I wanted to focus on on Paul's defense of himself, which he does twice. So we have the original call of Paul narrated in Acts chapter 9. 
And now we have Paul telling it in his own words in Acts chapter 22 and then 26. And what's interesting, oh, we should also, I like, some people call it the conversion of Paul. But I actually want to call it the call of Paul. Because the conversion of Paul means, well, Jewish equals bad and Christian equals good and he's a convert. And there's a sense in which he does have a repentance moment, but it's not because Judaism is bad. And so he actually doesn't ever deconvert from Judaism. He He's a Jew. He remains a Jew. He remains a Pharisee even. But he just has more knowledge about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that changes everything for him. And you, this is actually part of his defense, as you were saying with the resurrection. He He's using the pre-existing beliefs within Judaism, which was actually divided on the resurrection at this time in Second Temple Judaism. He's using that as a platform for grafting in the thing that he now knows to be true for himself. Mm-hmm. And what I wanted to do with Paul is talk about the importance of telling our stories, because we have it narrated in Acts 9, but then it's in his own words in Acts 22 and Acts 26, and he makes a very powerful defense of Christ. Now yeah. he doesn't he doesn't actually defend himself very well because obviously he gets he, he does the defenses don't make him free. Yeah. Uh but what they do is they defend Christ. And I think that's the important part. Paul is willing to even sacrifice his life. There's a tradition that he was beheaded at Rome because because of his witness of Christ. And so it's the importance of us telling our stories. When we liken the scriptures unto ourselves, we realize, oh, if I tell people what happened to me, and this is why I am where I am, and this is why I'm doing what I am doing, and this is what I saw, people can't argue with that, especially as LGBT people, as women, as uh, people of color in the church. When, when people tell their stories and saying, this is what I saw, this is what happened to me, it becomes more difficult to deny their, that those truths. People still do that; they deny, but it's 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 important yeah. to do that. I I just want to tie in that in the last part of Acts twenty one, Paul is challenged about what he's teaching, uh, and he is seen to be he's got he's gotten confused with this Egyptian re- rebel who has caused a lot of trouble. And in that moment, he names his identity. He says, I am a Jew of Tarsus. He names his identity as a way of bridging the gap between the accusation against him and where people need to be. And I think we can do that, too. People say, oh, well, we'll, we just, I don't see color or your orientation doesn't matter to me. Just keep it in the bedroom. All that stuff is blown away by Paul saying, look, he names his identity as a Jew of Tarsus in on several levels. You know, I just saw this recent video. You know Buzz Aldrin, who was one of the, the, the first two men to land on the moon? Yeah. I saw a video of him at 72 years old. Some one of, I don't understand these moon deniers. You know, these people who say we never landed on the moon and it was just a hoax? You've heard of this, right? Of course. Well, it's my barbershop right there. One of these moon deniers found Buzz Aldrin on the street walking around. He was going somewhere, went up to to Buzz Aldrin, 
and told him that he didn't land on the moon and he wanted Buzz Aldrin to to like to to swear on a bible that he really did and you can't actually prove it. You know what Buzz Aldrin did? He punched He punched him, the he? guy in the face. Yes, he punched him in the face, <laughs> which I am not advo- I am not advocating for this. But what I'm talking about is the audacity and the arrogance of someone who wasn't even there. He wasn't even born in 1969. Some young dude some young millennial went up to this this guy and say, you didn't land on the moon. And Buzz, I'm sure in his head, is like, yes, I did. I was there. I, I know what I did. And you have no right to tell me I didn't land on the moon when I know I did. And I think that is very, very similar to the experience of gay people in the church, especially trans people in the church. A lot of people believe gay people, right? Like, who would who would lie about being gay? Um but a lot of people don't believe trans people, and I think that's an even bigger thing in terms of of getting your story out there. There's people who don't believe that you, uh, of what well, the narratives that that trans people testify about themselves, and we sh- need to do something about that. And I'm just amazed by the power of Paul telling his story in the face of people who don't believe it. And I think one of the stories that that gay people need to tell is is like what is it what is it about right i'm not gay because it's a sexual kink or a fetish that i think that's what a lot of people think it is and it's not that at all being gay really actually isn't about sex in the end it's about building a life with someone forming a family with someone that you connect with it's about um, love. It's about connection. It's about true, deep, honest connection with another person that you are compatible with, which really is very a very different thing than sex. Uh, so I just wanted to name that as that seems to be the a very almost universal experience that gay people have is 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 it's not about a sexual, uh, you know, thing. I think a lot of people, when when they're straight and they and they look at uh, they look at gay people, they think it's like oh, it's like alcoholism or it's like pornography Dude. or it's like this other thing. It's like something you just slip up into, and it's not like that at all. So that's that's the uh, that's one thing I wanted to say. The other thing I wanted to say is if you look at X. Okay, so if you look at Acts 22, verse 16, Paul names his own complicity with injustice before he switches to the other side because part of his whole testimony is that he was the last person to fake this. He was against the Christian movement. He was against the Jesus movement from the beginning. He was persecuting them. And he is the last person you would expect to, to join the movement. Um, knowing how dangerous it is, knowing know, knowing how dangerous it is, things like that. But he did it anyway. He did it because of this vision. He saw the risen Lord. What Paul did is completely inexplicable without this vision. There is nothing that would have transformed Paul unless this vision really happened. There's no other way of explaining the evidence other than to say Paul was convinced that he was visited by the Lord who said, Paul,
Paul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Stop it. And this, this leads us to, to this, the acknowledgement that LGBT people are pioneers. Just like Paul was a pioneer, so are we. And we need to, we need to think about this as, as part of our story. And another part of our story is what is the story that we tell as a church? And one of the things that I'm amazed at as a theologian who joined the church is the difference between our churches. In many ways, other churches are defined by their past. They're like, oh, here's our historical founding theologians. Here's what we did. Here's what we came through. Here's our identity um, as Protestants or Catholics is formed by documents from the past. It's formed by incidents or developments from the past, particular struggles, and how those got resolved or didn't. Whereas other churches are defined by their past, I see us in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints as defined by our future. And this is profound because when so many people have uh, a faith crisis in the church, it's about church history or what happened in the 1840s in Nauvoo or what happened here. But I'm here to say that our identity isn't stuck in the past. It, it isn't even defined by the past. Our identity as Letters Today Saints has always been about what we're going to do. If you look at almost every section in the Doctrine and Covenants, it's not about what we've already accomplished, the temple that we already built. It's about the temple we're going to build or the, the policy that we're going to implement or the structure that we're going to do or the mission that you've been called to. Everything in this church, almost all of our scriptures in the Doctrine and Covenants are about the future about what we're going to do. And our identity is shaped by where we're going and not where we've been. And let me just tell you one real-life parable. This actually happened to me. So when I was an undergraduate, I took harpsichord lessons from one of the leading harpsichordists in the Midwest, Martha Steele in Milwaukee. And I was going to be a page-turner for one of her concerts where she was performing. And I asked her, how many measures before the end of the page do you want me to turn the page so that you can be on the next page in time? Because a lot, because different musicians have a, you know, how far they read ahead versus what they need. People want their page turned in a different place. And what she told me blew my mind away. She told me, turn the page after I get to the end of the page. What? Isn't that weird? She said, wait till I get to the end of the music that's on the page and then turn the page. And she here was her logic. She said, because I know where the music's going better better than I know where it's been. Wow. Because part of part part of Baroque harpsichord uh, performance is partially improv improvisation. It's partially playing by ear, especially if you are realizing a figured bass. You have to almost play by ear, knowing where the music is going. And she was all about, I know where the music is going better than I know where it's been. So turn it af- turn the page after I need it. I'm like, wow, wow, because that is so backwards from what you would assume. And I think that's how we are in the church. We know where we're going better than we know where we've been, even on the LGBT issue. 
Like I, my confidence in where we're going on this is so much more relevant to my existence in the church than the mess of the past or the mess of the present. Mm. And I just want to leave people with this is the message of the book of Acts. The book of Acts is also mostly about people say it's the first history of the church and it is, but almost everything in there is about where we're going as a people of God, not where we've been and what, what we've accomplished. There, there are very few actual long-term accomplishments in the book of Acts. Very few structures are built. I mean, no buildings have bu- are built, of course. Right. But many of the structures that are built end up being temporary. It's about where we're going as a people. Even the book ends with a cliffhanger. This every t- I've read the book of Acts many, many times in my life, and it always bugs me when I get to Acts chapter 28, and there's no chapter 29. I want to know. I mean, there needs to be another whole volume of where this story goes. And I think that's where we are as a people driven by a living prophet through whom the Lord speaks to us is that we are defined not by where we've been, but where we're going. And this is true on the LGBT issue. Mm. This is true on, on historical concerns and challenges that we have. Like what what Joseph and Brigham did does not define the church. They just started the conversation, and it's up to us to continue it. And I think there's a very beautiful message in the book of Acts about telling our stories, knowing where we're going, and letting that be the defining variable in what impacts us in the church. Not the past, but the future. And I think standing on that Mm. will lead us to Christ, and it will lead others to Christ. And that's basically all I have for the come follow me. Hey, you have some bars in there, Derek. I really like that. <laughs> some good stuff. Thanks. Not about the past. Thanks. It is about where we're going. That is uh that's some powerful stuff. I really like that. That that that's uh that that's a great note to end on if you have nothing else and we can go straight into the prayer roll. I don't know if nope, that's uh, a, you want to go first or if you have anything. Okay. Then um I can go ahead and go first. I don't know what you were going to talk about. I, I did, like, my prayer roll has to do with uh, Papa Osler's most recent podcast uh, with me and Tukolvi. I don't know what yours has to do with. Um, I I don't know what mine has to do with yet. I remember, let me look at my messages to you, and I'll figure out what I said. And then, <laughs> and then you start, okay? I'm sorry. I will start because it's it's been a week. Like I actually had a little trouble determining what I was going to talk about this week because there was like three incidents that happened this week with some, you know, pretty awful racism by like two of them were LDS folks. One, I don't know who they were. It was actually the Emmett Till dudes, but I'm actually going to talk about uh, somebody else because um, this actually has to do with this actually has to do with the saints and an attitude that is all too prevalent among white saints. Now, th- this particular person is not high profile, so he's going to remain anonymous as, you know, we don't want to publicly out this dude. So we're going to call him Saul. Now, I, I need to start off by saying that uh, the white supremacy is a hell of a drug. Like the confidence that it gives white people in their ignorance could literally kill them if it wasn't already designed to preserve their existence. And uh, let, let, let me just tell you how it reared its ugly head this week. Now, Papa Osler posted the episode of his podcast 
Listen, Learn, and Love that featured Tacovi and I on social media. He posted it. And it gained a lot of positive feedback. But as it is with just about everything that has a great deal of attention, there were some haters. And one of them was this dude named Saul. Saul felt like it was okay to opine that Tacovi's experience was not one of racism, but one of black people complaining for getting equal treatment. Now, in his mind, a white temple worker wouldn't be allowed to have locks. So why would a black temple worker be allowed to have locks? It's equality, right? So it makes perfect sense. He then proceeded to give some irrelevant information about how locks aren't seen as professional, even in black nations, and how most black politicians, even in Jamaica, don't wear locks. Like just all this irrelevant stuff that assumed a dramatic sameness among the African diaspora. So l- let me just stop there for a second. Okay. Now, when yeah. a black person has started a conversation about something they have more experience in than you, for example, racism or being black, then interrupting the conversation to suppose that you know better than they do what racism looks like and not even respecting their vocabulary in doing so is mad rude and it's pretty racist. Like, you wouldn't interrupt surgeons discussing a procedure to tell them that you disagree with them if you've never gone to medical school. So why would you interrupt a conversation two black men are having to tell them that they are wrong about their own experiences? Like, so anyway, moving on. The whole reason I view Tacovi's incident as racism is because America has a history of policing natural black hair because they view it as problematic. They view it as unprofessional or offensive or ugly or inappropriate or distracting. Like our hair is a product of our blackness and our blackness is a gift from God and an inseparable part of our identity. So if you have a problem with black hair, you have a problem with black existence and with the person who made it, God himself. Now, after explaining this to Saul, he doesn't listen, but he doubles down in his white supremacy, declaring that dreads aren't natural, end quote, and asking the inappropriate question, are you putting God and the patrons first by having your locks, or are you putting your blackness first? Again, white supremacy is a hell of a drug. So, so far, Saul has interrupted the conversation to disagree with people who have more experience in a subject matter than he does and even goes as far to say to two black men who have been alive and black longer than he has that locks aren't a natural hairstyle. Like, how would he know better than us? How would he supposed to know? Like, the thing about white supremacy is that even when white people... Even when white people are demonstrably out of their league, so long as the subject of their condescension or ridicule is black, they feel safe because they actually do feel superior. Like you wouldn't dare suppose tell a doctor how to do his job unless you knew better than him. And the only reason Saul thought he knew better than us was because he is white and we're black. Like why else would a white person try to tell a black person about their own experiences? Why else would a white person try to tell a black person how to combat racism? Why else would a white person supposed to know something that a quick Google search could have proven wrong? But they, but, but wait, there, there, there's more. So like when one hater speaks out, there are other haters that feel emboldened and a white lady came in to support Scott's points. Now, when Tacovi checked her, she called Tacovi sensitive and accused him of attacking her. Now, let me break this down real quick. 
You insert yourself into our conversation and you question our experiences and then you make yourself the victim while criticizing black men whose conversation you interrupted because his words make you uncomfortable. That is a classic deflection and one of the many ways that racism, in particular white fragility, rears its ugly head. This woman literally interrupted a conversation about racism and she made it about herself. That's how you impose your superiority on other people. It's rude and in this context, it's pretty racist. This is a mini masterclass in white fragility and and for those of y'all who don't know, White fragility is an academic term used to describe the pushback that white people exert to regain uh, racial position and, uh, and equilibrium when their already low threshold for racial discomfort is tested. So, as a response, they resort to minimizing problems, derailing conversations, deflecting responsibility, dismissing experience, education, and expertise, all in an effort to make themselves feel better about their complicity in the status quo. This is the way racism looks most of the time. It's not people using the N-word or wearing clan hoods or having a purposeful wife's Twitter account, but it's the <laughs> relegating of the black body and the black mind to a place where their grievances cause no discomfort to white people. Both of these individuals mm -hmm. are members of the church, and their response would be comical if I didn't believe more people at church thought more like them, and if the majority of people at church, including leaders, didn't look like them. So, um... So we're going to we're going to pray for both of these souls because they are in dire need of repentance and forgiveness. But also, I want to let all the white people in the church know who are listening that me and Tocqueville can't be the ones checking white people all the time because we'll just look like angry black men if we do it. Plus, it's exhausting. It's just another note. OK, so like with, with, with regard to this angry black man thing, because this is this is another important um, thing that came up in this conversation. I am super careful with how I talk to white women in person, especially when white men are around. The white woman is the most valued possession, and yes, I'm using the word possession deliberately, the most valued possession of the white man. And regardless of how wrong a white woman could be or how damaging her words or actions could be, if she feels threatened by me checking her, her discomfort suddenly becomes more distressing than my discomfort. The white woman is the picture of innocence, of docility, and gentleness, while the black man is the picture of aggression, anger, and criminality. I often don't bother with white women when they say ignorant stuff because I don't want that smoke. So please don't make us do that by waiting us by waiting on us to check the ignorance. You play a part in dismantling white supremacy among our ranks, and you must dispel the myth of white solidarity by letting your white brothers and sisters know that not every white person thinks like them. That is a big reason a lot of racism flies under the radar. So next time you hear, ne next, next time you hear one of your family or friends say something questionable, whether we're around or not, you gotta check that mess. And not checking that is complicity in the status quo, and it's a problem. I'm all done. And rant. Wow. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you so much for sharing that. Now, it's tough. I imagine it's tough for, for people in the moment to know, should I speak up or not? Because because we don't want to be seen as speaking for black people. Certainly. But we do want to speak up where we, we need to and not and not make black people have the burden of, of self-advocating and and it, because this is a good place for good cop, bad cop, because the white, 
the white accomplice can say all the negative stuff and then they get they get seen as negative but if the black person says it now then then it because because part of what you want to do is is end up people having um a positive view of black people and it, it to to cause trouble in a in a form of of white fragility means that you have sort of two divergent goals one is you have to maintain the relationship and maintain positive feelings about your group and two you also have to call out the injustice and both of those are in opposite directions in terms of the impact so it yeah i'm not sure what the best thing to do in those situations but i do want to comment on the definition of racism because i think this gets thrown around so much and what i've realized isn't that that people just don't aren't aware of racism i think it's that they have completely opposite definitions of racism and i think on one side you have racism as like like the whole colorblind people like i don't see color and i treat everyone equally their definition of racism is if you look at different people and treat them differently then that's racism so that's their their definition i think they're under that logic if if someone allows a black person to have locks but not a white person then that's racist and a racist but it's actually backwards because what they're ignoring is the structural and systemic impact of all of these things yes because white people's hair white people's hair was never now okay yeah sometimes white people's hair is policed in terms of unprofessional or this but that's always done as on an individual basis it was never used in this country to intimidate an entire group of people uh, i mean if, when it was done for white when it's done on a white person like oh your beard is too scruffy or oh your hair is whatever when it's done to a white person that is never attributed to their whiteness it is attributed to their hipsterness or something else it is never attributed to their whiteness because uh because the white situation is the dominant one in this country and it the hair uh you know so i think it is very very different to call out a white person's hair for being unprofessional which ha doesn't have anything to do with their race mm -hmm. and has never been used to intimidate an entire population of white people and then the same thing with black people or the different uh, it's different with black people because hair has been used to police black bodies and minds and intimidate and oppress and restrict an entire group of people and because the impact is different and the effect is different your definition of racism has to be aware enough to notice that because if all you see is is what the if you don't see that background you don't actually see people's experiences and that that's where i think this well-meaning i hope he's a well-meaning white person went wrong <laughs> is that he has just a, a very backwards definition of racism compared to what we're using so i i guess i'll choose that as my prayer role too i don't have anything else yeah i don't have anything else for that all right cool then if that's it for prayer roll stuff uh derek do you have any announcements or reminders 
No, um, I just wanted to announce uh, Blair Ostler is coming out with a book on queer Mormon theology at some point. She has signed a contract with a publisher, and I, I, I think this is going to be our first ever book of queer Mormon theology, and I don't know exactly what it will cover, but I just wanted to lift up uh, our, our queer sister here and say, look, this is, this is an amazing thing. And people should should watch out for for this when it comes out. I don't know when it's coming out, but she's been doing a lot of good work on this, and that's something to celebrate. The other announcement is: if you like our podcast, I want you to think about a few people who would benefit from listening to this. Share it with them. Uh, figure out like, oh, this episode really would speak to this person in their struggle or in their advocacy or whatever. Think about what we've said and give us a share. Give us a like. We are not just likable in person. We are also likable on Facebook. So you can go to our Facebook page and like us. <laughs> Brilliant. And uh, speaking of uh, social media and lifting up our sisters, our queer sisters, uh, I really appreciate the feedback that uh, we've been getting about the podcast, you know, all of the feedback. Uh, if you haven't rated us on iTunes yet, we definitely encourage you to go and leave us a review. Uh, leave five stars or don't leave a review at all. We will come find you. So, you know, there's that. But also, we've been hearing a lot of you guys who have uh, been talking about uh, adding additional voices to the podcast, particularly female voices. We hear y'all, like for real, we do. Uh, we're waiting for opportunities to bring some of these voices in and also uh, we want to reserve some of the topics that these women and other experts are well versed in to give them their own episodes like these episodes that Derek and I uh, record they are pretty they, they have a they have a format but uh, we want to give topics we want to give interviews and those will probably be reserved for the uh, bonus episodes that we eventually uh, release but in order for us to release bonus episodes we got to have more listeners and for us to get more listeners we need y'all sharing the podcast and uh, once we get to that point we'll be able to add further funding and further resources that'll be dedicated to uh, bringing in these additional voices and talking about more topical things and also to do some interviews. So like Derek said, definitely encourage you guys to share this podcast. It helps us immensely and it's going to help us bring more yeah. uh, premium content to you guys. So uh, just wanted to add my witness to Derek's imploration. I don't think that's a word, but I'm, I'm running with it anyway. That's, that's all I got. So if that is everything, then we will see you guys next week. Okay, yeah. See you next week. Bye.